Thank you, Ellis. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be with you. You know, when you meet someone for the first time and you go into their home, you begin to get a quick sense of what are some of the values, who, what makes them tick. And I'm getting that here at Chapel Hill. And the first thing that I'm noticing is this, this community of people that cares about the things that really matter. You're not just satisfied with sort of surface-level living. You're, you're digging deeper into relationship with God, into relationships with one another, and serving your community. And so it's a privilege for me to share in this with you. And I didn't want you wondering, who is this guy who's standing up on our stage right now? So I brought a family selfie to share with you. If you want to look at the screen, this is my great family. That's my wonderful, amazing, much, much better than me wife, Sarah. And she's joining me here this morning, right over here. We have been married for 17 years. Now, do you know how convenient it is to be married in the year 2000? It's like, whew. Craig, how long have you been married? Uh, what year is it? Uh, 17 years. Yeah, okay. God knew I needed, I was the kind of guy that needs a little bit of extra help. And then those are our two little ones. That's Isaiah. He's 10. Isabel is 8. And if you come to our house, they will beat you at Monopoly Junior. I can promise you that. But... We love them, and as you continue getting to know me, you'll figure out that I'm a guy who makes mistakes, and I have a load of mistakes. One of them I want to tell you this morning, some years ago, my wife and I were trying to fit a tall bookshelf into our sedan, and she's standing up at the front. This was this project, and we had to go from the trunk all the way to the front of the car, and I'm in the back, and I'm just, I'm going to get that bookshelf into the car. And she's standing up there, honey, I don't think this is going to work. I really don't think this is a good idea. I got this. Give me a break. I am going to make this bookshelf fit. And I just start jamming the, the trunk down. Honey, I don't think this is going to work. And then finally, I just got it in there, closed the trunk. And she just starts smiling and looking at the enormous gash that I just carved out of the fabric on our dashboard, or, you know, whatever that's made of. And, and, I mean, we can't get this fixed. At the time, we didn't have any money. We had to live with this for five or six years. And so it meant every time we were driving around and my wife was sitting in the passenger seat, she's staring at this gas, just smiling at me. And maybe she used that, that really powerful word now and then, this interesting it is the most pregnant word you can ever use. And, but I'm sitting there, of course, well, honey, I did make it fit, didn't I? There's priorities here. So that was an expensive mistake. I have made many more expensive mistakes. Can I get a show of hands? Any other expensive mistake makers here? Yes, thank you so much. Husbands, you all better have your hand in the air right now, or your wife's going to start bumping it up for you. Well, we are going to talk about uh, a mistake this morning. And I made an enormous mistake some years ago, and and it just about shut out the work of God in my own heart and the life of someone who I love very, very dearly. And see, I needed this miracle. I needed this breakthrough. But I was making this miracle-stopping mistake again and again and again. And I was wondering, God, why aren't you coming and showing up? But it was this mistake that I was making. 
And as I've reflected, I've seen Christians over and over again longing for that breakthrough, that miracle. God, show up in my job. God, show up in my finances. Show up in my health. Give me a breakthrough, a miracle in this relationship with this person I love who's so far from you. God, bring them back home to you. I need this miracle. But we as Christians continue making this miracle-stopping mistake and then missing out on the power and the presence of God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is how— can we change so that we can make more room for God's miracles in our life? I want that, and I, and I trust that you want that too. And we'll do this by studying in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you're a Bible or a Bible app user, you can pull that out, 2 Kings chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. And I am just going to start in verse 1. 2 Kings 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. So she is desperate. She's coming to this man of God. The, The word and the presence and the provision of God flows through Elisha as a prophet. Elisha replied to her. He said, How can I help you? Tell me. What do you have in your house? He's saying, well, what, what do you have to work with here? And she says, your servant has nothing here at all. Just there's nothing at all. Except, well, maybe this small jar of olive oil. Now, you can already see when you read this text, she's beginning to make the enormous, expensive, costly, miracle-stopping mistake. She thinks there is no available resource in the cupboards of her life, so to speak, that could ever multiply into a miracle. She's becoming defeated by defeat. And that was the expensive mistake that I made in my relationship with my father. And just so you can get to know him a little bit, he, he was in, in many ways a very good man. A, a loving father who tried hard. I remember all these great memories of he and I doing canoe trips together and, and you know, 4-H and Boy Scouts and, and gave me a Swiss Army knife, all, all these things. And yet as the years grew and I grew just a little bit older, he was wrestling with a lot of internal pain and challenges in his own life. And he escaped into workaholism. And he distanced himself from our family emotionally and and relationally. And even though he didn't mean it, he was sending these messages that I heard as a a young guy that said, you're not accepted. These heart-crushing messages wasn't wasn't available for us. Now, he was a Jewish attorney in downtown Chicago, so this old boys network. And he had even let his... Jewish faith sort of, sort of separate from his life. But at this point in our lives, in our relationship, I realized there is no way that he ever wants to come close to God. And it feels like he also wants absolutely nothing to do with me. And, and of course, how did I begin reacting? Well, I started backing away. I thought there's nothing I could ever do. We've tried. We've had that conversation. I, I've, 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 I at that time became a Christian, and that only created more and more distance and friction between us. He had no concept of, of who I was becoming and why I was doing this, and, and he, re, he resented it. And I just started to give up and no longer try again. I had let defeat set in. And so back to this text, the first step that this scared and grieving widow needed to realize is that 
the, the miracle-stopping problem, it was no longer the, difficult that, the difficulty that she faced. It was the defeat that she had let begin to reside in her own life. And so often, don't we think that? We think, well, God, the, the problem is that situation. The problem is that person. The problem is this challenge that I'm facing. And the first step that we need to reclaim is our own heart. So we're no longer defeated by defeat. That is the miracle-stopping mistake. Because if we don't do that, if we don't reclaim our hearts, then we won't be able to do step two, which is release the resource. Step one is rekindle our hearts. Step two is to release the resource. And what do we mean by that? Well, if you study scripture and you study the, the supernatural work of God, the miracles that just fill the pages of the text, you'll begin to see a pattern. God will show up. He will do the supernatural, but it almost always begins with a natural resource. It almost always begins with a natural resource. And we're, we're going to find out, this woman, that the small jar of olive oil had a, had a very big implication into the miracle she was going to experience. Or you, you think of Moses standing at the Red Sea. The Israelites have the Pharaoh and his armies barreling down on, the, on their backs. And they look at the Red Sea of opportunity and challenge ahead. And they say, God, help us. And God says to them, why are you crying out to me? He says, take this staff that's in your hand already and go part the Red Sea, will you? And then walk through it and carry on. He says, I've already given you the resource. I want you to engage it now. And multiply it. You think of Jesus at the time he was going to feed the 5,000 people. Remember what happened? He turned to the disciples and said, what do we have to feed them with? Now he knows what he's going to do. But he says, what are you going to bring to the table that I can multiply into a miracle? Until this little boy came up and said, well, I have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, great. Now I have just what I need. You know, there's some skin in the game, so to speak. He multiplies. He gives thanks to the Father. And it says of 5,000 men were fed that day. Even the miracle of salvation itself required the body and the blood of Christ that then the Father could multiply into eternal forgiveness for all people. So we see this pattern. God will release the supernatural, but it almost always begins with someone bringing a natural resource to bear. The Apostle Paul used this phrase. He said in 2 Corinthians 6.1, we are God's co-workers. So when it comes to God doing his miraculous work, he has a a name and a title and a position for us. He says that you're my co-workers. He's he's looking to us to be the conduits through which the kingdom of heaven can come to earth. See, God is looking for a foothold that we create by our faith for him to begin to bring the breakthrough. And unless we're uh, committed and involved in providing that foothold, that time, that energy, that apology, that extra effort, we often miss the potential of God in our lives. See, we're not only invited to participate in the solution, we are necessary in order for the, the solution to take shape. And I started to see that this reality had set in in my own life, my relationship with my dad. I was being defeated by defeat. I let this scarcity versus abundance mentality set in, and I'd stopped working. I'd stopped trying. Now, at this time in my life, I was a pastor of his church about 40 minutes from where my dad lived, and we were getting ready for this huge Father's Day outreach event. And 
I had this sense from God. He's, God is kind of nudging me. Craig, I want you to rekindle your heart. I want you to release the resource that's already there. And, and I, of course, answered to God. I'm like, there's nothing in the cupboards of my life, right? There's nothing I could do. I've tried. And God said, well, don't you have a Father's Day service coming up that you're planning and praying for? Why don't you invite your dad? And so I invited my dad, and we had been estranged for 15 years, and he came to that service. And I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. 2 Kings 4, verse 3. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. And so she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell all the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So I read that, and I get the impression God would have filled however many jars that she had collected and placed before him. And so we don't know exactly how many jars that she collected from the text, but what if she collected three jars? What if, what if her heart had enough faith and willingness to go around to the neighbors, and, she, and, and she's having this sort of conversation to herself? She's like, this is ridiculous. Go collect empty jars. Are you serious? I've tried everything. I've tried to ask my neighbors for help before, and these jars aren't going to do a single thing. And this guy is crazy. I mean, he's a little bit loony. Do you see what he's wearing? And he's asking me to collect these jars. Fine, I'll get one. Great. Well, he's going to think I only got one jar. Okay, I'm going to get another jar. I want to make sure that I'm looking like I'm at least trying, but I know this is just, this is honestly a waste of my time. I'll get three jars. That's it. Here's the three jars. And then she puts it before the, the prophet representing the provision of God. And what does she get then? She's a three jar miracle. Because that's just about the amount of faith that her heart could produce. Now, what if she went around and collected 300 jars? What do you think would happen then? You know, she had the heart and the faith to say, you know, this is the God of heaven that we're talking about, created the universe and the stars and parted the Red Sea and brings people back from the dead and saved me and called people to himself. This is the God of all time. I better collect one. I better collect two. I better collect three. I better keep going. I don't know what's going to happen with these jars, but why wouldn't I get another one and put it before the God who loves me and cares and wants to provide and keep us out of slavery? I better get more and more, and more, and put it before God. Now, what would she have received then? A 300-jar miracle. So here's my question for you. What is the difference between a three-jar miracle and a 300-jar miracle? And it's not a trick question. It's how many empty jars did she have the faith to put before the God of heaven? How many jars, how much need would she place before him, believing, well, this is the God of heaven that we're talking about, and he might fill it. What if the amount of blessing and breakthrough that you receive in your life matches the amount of need in faith that you place before your God? 
What if the outpouring that you experience matches the outcry to your God? What does it take to become someone who goes and collects 300 jars instead of just three? Now, what are the jars that we can fill, the empty jars that we can place before our God of heaven? I'll share two. I'll share two stories, and then we'll close, and we'll lead into a prayer. Now, the first is an invitation. An invitation is a jar that God can fill. And we have all people in our lives that we love, coworkers, friends, neighbors, family members who are far from Christ. And, of course, we want God to work in their lives. And so often we, we pray prayers, which is important. And we say, God, would you zap that person? Just, you know, just spiritually change them. And we forget what we're called in Scripture. God's co-workers. He says, I do want to zap them. Now, sometimes he does. He can do anything. But when we make an invitation, it's another empty jar with the potential to change eternity. Every single time. And so how many invitations do we make? Three? Do we make 300? Because every single time we make an invitation, it's another jar that God can fill. Now, of course, you heard from LSI Lead Alpha in the U.S., and and you've heard about this 10-week course. We create space for people to bring their questions, to share their point of view, and we're inviting the power of God to change their heart and their life. Now, I I got involved because I I started learning 24 million people globally in, in 160 countries have gone through Alpha. I thought, this is incredible. And I, I learned that 315,000 people just last year alone in the United States went through Alpha in churches in all denominations and in 350 prisons across the country even. It's, it's phenomenal. And I started seeing God is at work. But how do you think all of these people come to Alpha? What's the number one reason that someone shows up? Yeah, say it out loud. An invitation. You got it. And I started to want to understand, well, how potent is this invitation? I mean, does it really make a difference? And so I started studying this report, the Barna Group. It's a, it's a great research organization to study the impact of Alpha globally and found that if, a, if someone without faith starts and completes the course, 82% of them end up crossing the line and trusting in Christ by the time they're finished. Now, I don't know about you, I have never, ever seen something as fruitful as that. And so I was a pastor, and that's why I started getting involved. Count me in. If God is at work at this level, I am there, and I want to be a part of it. Now, I love stats, but more importantly, I love stories. And I want to invite a friend of mine, Christian, to come up on stage. Christian lives here in Washington, grew up here, and just a local guy. And Christian went through an alpha course in Tacoma, right? And I thought you could just hear a bit about who he was and what he's gone through. So, Christian, tell us about your life before you, you went to Alpha. Just give us a, a picture of who you are or who you were. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so just take a quick, real, real quick step back. I grew up in the church, and I figured that when I graduated high school that I graduated from the church at the same time. And as silly as that sounds, I got onto a path of people-pleasing and chasing after the things of the world. So I was trying to do anything that bosses wanted me to do, chasing money, chasing unhealthy relationships. 
And it really led me to a very dark place of isolation and bad, unhealthy friends and just bad choices in general that uh, found me in my mid to late 20s, starting in my early 20s, at a place of uh, opiate and more important, or even worse, pain pill and heroin addiction for six years. And I was to a place now that family didn't want anything to do with me. Friends did not want to talk to me. And I was really by myself uh, with drug dealers and unhealthy people all around. So what happened? So someone obviously invited you to Alpha and you came. Um, Tell us what was that like to receive that invitation? And then what happened to you when you were at Alpha? Uh, When I was only 10 days clean, I couldn't even have a full night's sleep yet. I was still struggling to get drugs out of my system. Someone invited me to an alpha course, and they made a personal invitation to come sit with them and be at their alpha table. And all I heard during the invitation was free food, so I said yes. Like, it, it got me out of my situation. I was in for the night, had a good meal, and be with people that I knew were healthy. Uh, and I show up, and I was just going to ignore the process. And the first week's topic was, is there more to life than this? And growing up in the church, I knew, that I knew the truth, but I didn't feel or apply any of it. And at that moment, I realized that I was there for a reason because God does not work by coincidence. So from that very first week, I kind of started to pay attention. And I made such good friends, even on week one, that that kept me coming back. And even though I came for the food, I came back because of the friends. And through that entire process, like Craig mentioned in those statistics, I was one of that 82%. And my faith became real and alive. And it wasn't stuck in my head. But it was now a heart feeling and... uh, a change in the way that I process everything. Now love and joy and peace were a filter by which I had all my encounters and relationships flow through. That's amazing. And tell us, who is Jesus to you now that you've, you've, you've gone through Alpha and obviously you've experienced a powerful life change? Yeah, just Jesus has been just so obviously important. But now I can call a friend that is always with me and doesn't get frustrated when I screw up, but is like that calming GPS voice when we make a wrong turn and just says, Christian, rerouting. And is just always going to be there and be so peaceful and supportive. And and like I said, just fully internally that warm feeling of just a, a joy that I know I respond to different situations because of Jesus in my life. That's great. Now tell us what you do for work. Uh, yeah, so I actually have felt the calling to have and give as many people the opportunity that I was given. So a couple years ago, actually, Alpha Washington reached out and um, presented me with the opportunity to be the director of Alpha Washington. So now my job is to go around and help churches launch and start Alpha, such as you guys are doing on January 10th. And I get to be a part of the process of training congregations to get out and invite people like me that wouldn't have had that opportunity. I love it. Can we thank Christian? Yeah. And if you want to spend more time with Christian and and hear more, he's going to be out at the booth with Madison in the lobby. He'll be back here on December 2nd to do a training and trust me, he's a fun guy to, to want to spend more time with. So hopefully you can participate in that. An invitation to an Alpha course is a potent jar that we can place before the God of heaven. And he might just might fill it. He might just might transform that person's life that you make that invitation to. The second jar that I want to mention is prayer. Very simply. So when my dad came to that Father's Day service, it 
really opened my eyes. I realized I had better get praying. And so I started praying, and I did a terrible job at it. I thought, this is not working. Nothing's happening. And I had, I had very little motivation. I'm like, I don't even know how to pray for him. We had so much distance and frustration over the years. And, but I kept praying, and I prayed again. And it's like a, every prayer was just another jar. I'll try again. Every, every intercession, just another attempt to ask God to fill it. And then we started meeting together. And he would come to church, and then we would go out for lunch during the week. Now, fast forward, my dad contracted Parkinson's. And he fought this battle to the end, about a six-year development for him. But one day, before he lost his lucidity, I was praying for my dad, so I'm putting out this jar, and I got this sense from the Holy Spirit, and it was just this. It was just now. I thought, okay, I better get over there right now. And I sat down with him, and I said, Dad, remember last week we were sitting in this very chair, And I explained to you how we need, as your family who loves you, to set up power of attorney. You can't take care of yourself. You know where you're heading uh, physically and mentally. And you humbled yourself and you said, yes, I need someone to care for me in a way that I can't for myself. And then I said, Dad, it's time today to set up power of attorney for your soul. Now, I never thought to share, no one ever trained me to share the gospel that way. It just came to my brain. I'm like, how do you share the gospel with an old Jewish attorney that only understands legal terms? I don't know. But it instantly just sank into his heart. And he said, yes, I need to give over power of attorney my soul to Jesus Christ, who's the only person that can care for me and meet my needs and, and forgive me and bring me into life to the full right now and into, into the life after death. And, and he just started crying, and we prayed together. And he said, yes, Jesus, I want you. And then do you know what he did? He turned to me afterwards, and he said, what every estranged son wants to hear from their father. He just said, Craig, I am so proud of you. I love you so much. I respect you as a man. I, I, I love what you're doing with your life as a pastor. I'm just thinking, what? This is my dad. 70 years has been stiff-arming his creator, and for at least the last 15 or 20 has been separated from me. This is what's happening now? Fast forward again. He went into a coma, and for two, two and a half weeks, we weren't able to talk to him. And I mean, it was the end. We we had put him into hospice off all life support. He was a marathon runner. So a really strong heart. So he wouldn't die. And I say that just to having been a, a, a few years now, but, but he hung on, but wasn't with us. And I just felt something's not right about this. And so I put out another jar and said, God, would you give us a chance? And the family had all flown in, and we had to leave. We'd, we'd been sort of vigil for almost two weeks now. And I walked in and was by myself in the room with him, and I just slowly, it's exactly what happened. I laid my hand on his chest. I felt his heart beat through this thin hospital gown. And just another second later, and just instantly his eyes popped wide open, and he woke up. And... His peoples hadn't focused for a couple of weeks, and so it took him a while, and he finally found my face. And he didn't have control over his muscles, and so he tried to smile and move, but he, he really couldn't. And I just got down 
real close to his face. And I just said, Dad, you're the dad that I love so deeply. I never we want any other dad in this whole planet but you. And I'm proud of who you are and who you've become. And you've taught me how to, how to be compassionate and kind and diligent and work hard. And said, now, Dad, as, my, as, you, <clears throat> as your pastor... I pulled out Psalm 23 and I read him and I said, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I mean, tears are just flowing out of this dying man's eyes. I said, you can go now, peace. And I realized every blessing that a father could ever have spoken to a son, he communicated before he passed away. Every blessing that a son could ever have communicated to a father, I got to communicate to him. That was the story that I get to tell to you today. I was supposed to tell the story that, hey, I had this dad who stiff-armed his creator for 70-some years and separated from me, and he died with resentment in his heart and bitterness in my heart, and that's it. But that's not the story that I get to tell to you because we continue putting jars out before the God of heaven because you never know. God might just fill that extra jar that you bring before him. So as we get ready to close, I'd invite you to stand right now, please. Everyone in the room with me. What about you? Where are you tempted to allow defeat to set in? Is there a relationship in your life where you're being defeated by defeat? Is there a person you've been longing to see God just, you know, zap into his kingdom and he's inviting you to be a coworker in that process? Where are you tempted to stop at collecting only three jars and God is saying, no, 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 I want you to collect 300 jars for the sake of this person. It might be that an invitation to Alpha is something that you begin praying about for someone in your life. It may be for some of you, and I think there are at least a couple people here who realize, you know, it's probably me. I've been defeated by defeat about me. I need to put out a jar before Christ and ask him to be my Lord and Savior and forgiver today and, and, and start brand new. And Pastor Ellis is going to lead you through a prayer like that. Never forget. We are God's coworkers when it comes to his miraculous work. The amount of blessing that we might experience might just match the amount of need that we place before him. God's outpouring might just match your outcry. So don't give up. Try again. Pray again. Ask again. Invite again. Go and get another jar because with God, all things are possible. Let's pray.